0: When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you.
1: So I want you to imagine with me for just a second as we get started the most peaceful setting you can think of. So depending on who you are, you might have a different scenario in your head. Some of you might be thinking about a day on the beach, The weather is perfect, it's not too crowded, you have a great book in one hand, and your favorite drink in the other, and you don't have to tell anybody what it is. Others of you might be thinking of a cabin on the side of a mountain somewhere, the snow is falling outside, the fire is crackling inside, and you're sitting in an oversized, comfortable recliner with not a care in the world. And still others of you might be thinking of something maybe a little noisier, but still what you would describe as peaceful. Maybe you imagine sitting at your favorite restaurant, their best entree in front of you, someone else is picking up the bill, and you're surrounded by your closest friends and a table full of laughter and joy, peace. This morning, we're going to spend a few minutes looking together at this idea of peace as revealed for us by the person of Jesus. Now, when we think of peace, often we primarily think of maybe the absence of conflict, a place of safety, and sitting in the midst of a bunch of things that make us happy. And that's not a bad vision, and those are not bad desires. However, I would argue that the pathway to peace is not seeking to attain enough status or wealth where you can kind of manufacture and create enough peaceful settings in your life and rid your world of any disturbances. Because, as we all know and have experienced, even when we try our best to create or manufacture peace, things that are out of our control can very quickly disrupt that. However, If our peace is found not in experiences, but rather in a person, what we might just find is that there is a peace offered to us that cannot be disturbed or taken away, but the path to that peace might be much different than we'd ever imagined. So good morning again, church. As always, as I said earlier, it is a joy to be gathered with you. As I mentioned earlier, uh, my name is Joel and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor for preaching and oversight here. Um, Continue to be in prayer for Kevin Perry, our pastor for shepherding. He and his wife, Chris, are still in Africa um, on a mission support trip, supporting some friends of theirs, and they hope to kind of head back this way Saturday. Um, They might make it next Sunday. We don't know. I told them, don't feel like you have to. I know it's Easter, but it's all right. You don't get extra points docked off because you miss Easter. So go listen to last week's sermon uh, if you don't believe that. All right, anyways. Um, As you can see, we're taking a break from our series through Hebrews, which we'll pick back up after Easter. We're kind of spending two weeks, which we'll do this some years, um, to look at the last week of the life of Jesus as narrated by Luke's gospel. The last week of Jesus' life is traditionally called Holy Week. Now, depending on if you grew up in church at all or what church tradition you grew up in, you might be like more familiar with Holy Week than I am. Uh, Some of you, if you grew up Baptist like me, you have no idea what it is and you just think it's a Catholic thing. And so you're like, I don't even want to know. But... Holy Week is simply part of the liturgical church calendar, which is a very helpful tool for Christians that just reminds us about different times of Jesus's life. And this week specifically is for the purpose of us slowing down and reflecting on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What I wanna do is give you a quick rundown of the significant days of Holy Weeks to kind of ground us in the larger context. So four main significant days in Holy Week. So the first one is Palm Sunday. That is what today is on the church calendar. It's the week before Easter. And so that is the day when Jesus, it's called Palm Sunday, because Jesus rode his triumphal entry as people were waving palm branches. And they were laid on the ground as Jesus enters Jerusalem, um, known commonly again as the triumphal entry. Then you have Maundy Thursday. Okay, it gets its name Maundy from the word mandate or command, and it's the new command that Jesus gives his disciples. This is Thursday, the day before Jesus was crucified. If you remember, it was when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples. Most people call it the Last Supper. You might have seen popular paintings on that. On this night, he institutes the Lord's Supper, he washes the feet of his disciples, and he gives in the new mandate to love one another as He had loved them. It's what we remember every week when we take communion here at New Eden, the death and burial, the death and, um, burial of Jesus. Then there's Good Friday, which was the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the day that He is placed on a cross to die for the sins of the world. Now it seems like an oxymoron to call that day good, but when you know it comes on Sunday, it makes sense because Sunday is what is traditionally called Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Call it what you want, want. I really don't care. It's the day Jesus got up out of the grave and beat death, hell, and sin. So we're going to celebrate it regardless of how you want to do that. So in this series, for the first week, we're kind of zooming in at Palm Sunday. And next week, we'll be looking at Resurrection Sunday. I do encourage you, there's plenty of resources online if you want me to direct you to some, to kind of spend some time maybe with your family or community group looking at some of the other days. Um, but we're kind of just sandwiched here in between the two. And so we're calling this two-week series Revealed. Um, the idea of this series is the unveiling of Jesus. That's what the eyes open are. Some people have told me it looks like something out of a horror movie. So if that's what you thought, I'm sorry. I don't know. We didn't spend much time. It's a two-week series. So I didn't put too much thought into it. Their eyes are big and open, and I thought they were pretty, not scary, but whatever. <laughs> that might say more about y'all than me. So. All right, so, so where we get this name revealed from, though, at the in Luke's gospel, what you'll see in the couple weeks we're in here, especially towards the end, there is this theme, this recurring theme of people who physically see something with their eyes. They're staring something in the face, but they fail to really understand what's going on. And Jesus will even directly tell them that they fail to recognize what is actually in front of them. As you heard read a moment ago, the Pharisees are told that they don't know what brings about actual peace because they fail to recognize the time that God Himself visited them. And so today, in the time we have left, we're going to see how true peace is revealed for us in the person of Christ if we can only recognize what is staring us in the face. So the first thing about peace we're gonna look at is this, the promise of peace. The promise of peace. So to understand peace as defined for us by Jesus, we must first understand a little bit about the world in which Jesus lived. Peace was not a foreign concept, it was actually a very trendy idea for the, 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 the context in which Jesus lived. The life of Jesus took place in a culture where the Roman empire was in charge and had experienced relative success. This time is referred to in history as the Pax Romana, which meant the peace of Rome. And Rome experienced in one sense, an idea of peace. And they, they, they touted and promised this idea of social peace to their citizens at least as long as they fell in line with their promised and their proposed ideals. The issue is that if you study deep enough, this peace was selectively offered and it came at the expense of many who were enslaved and oppressed and kept under the thumb of those in political power. And even for those who were on the right side of this peace, those that experienced this temporary peace, that was the problem, it was temporary. It only lasted, go study history, for another couple hundred years. This peace was not eternal. So that's the broad social context, but not only that, there's the religious context. There's another institution of the day that promised peace, and that was the religious system. This old covenant Jewish system that had the temple life at its center, it promised that one could have peace with God if enough rules and regulations would just be followed, However, this idea of peace was also selectively offered. It was kept tightly guarded by the religious gatekeepers of the day who determined who was in and who was out and who was kept on the outside and on the fringes. And so just like the social power of the Romans came through political, sorry, the social peace of the Romans came through political power, this peace came through a religious power. And again, it would not last. In this exact passage, Jesus actually prophesied the destruction of the temple in just 40, under 40 short years from then. So there's the promise of social peace from Rome, the promise of religious peace from the old covenant temple system and the religious leaders. But if we'll look closely and if we have eyes to see, we'll also see that there was always a promise of real peace from Yahweh, the God of the Bible who promised peace, not just to a select few, but to the entire world, well before Jesus ever became incarnate and was born. Look back with me to the Old Testament. I'll have it on the screen for you. Zechariah 9, verses nine through 10. And this is a prophecy about a Yahweh who would bring peace. And it says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. So, so the chariot from Ephraim, horse from Jerusalem, there's no more need for, for items of war and instruments of war. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to Israel. Wait, no, peace to the nations. His dominion will extend the borders of, no wait, from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Long ago, there had been a promise of peace that would extend not just for a select few, not for those with military might or who were born into the right family, but rather to the ends of the earth. Not based on social status or ethnicity or class or genealogy, and there were those who had been longing and waiting patiently for this peace to come, especially those who were the outsiders in Rome and the outsiders among the religious elite, those who had been oppressed and kept on the margins, longed for a leader who would come and in war and strife and poverty and division and usher in peace. But what would it look like when it arrived? And how would it unfold? And this is the context in which we find the story of Palm Sunday. These are the cultural pressures that Jesus lived and was born into on purpose, based on the sovereign plan of God. When the right time came, Jesus entered. As N.T. Wright calls it, it was the perfect storm. Our story today takes place at the end of Jesus's ministry. By this point, there were many followers of Jesus who had read the Old Testament scriptures and really believed that this was the messianic king, the long awaited Messiah who would bring peace. He had had proved it by healing the sick and raising the dead and even forgiving sins. And not only that, people heard and watched as he stood up to those in power protesting against worldly ideas of peace. And I include the religious elite in that worldly understanding, political, religious power, only offered to the select few. Jesus with his life and with his lips, he protested against that. And so now as the pressure mounts, no more hiding who Jesus is, the tension begins to rise and Jesus begins his descent toward Jerusalem. Now, we don't know if the crowds fully understood. Probably some did and probably some didn't, but they knew something was up. But Jesus knew what he was headed toward. Not peace, but a conflict and a conflict that was greater than anything the world had ever known. We saw first the promise of peace and now we see the path of peace. Peace. culturally during this time, when a warrior king would conquer a city, that king would then ride into the city with a huge procession. No expense would be spared. The red carpet would be rolled out. The bands would play the dancers would dance and people would line the street the king's subjects both old and new would line the pathway and begin to cheer and chant probably some out of joy and some out of fear because they didn't want to be squashed to and they would give honor and allegiance to the king this was the expectation but the reality of this king and this entrance is much different Jesus sends his followers not to get a war horse, but a donkey, a humble animal, not revered or looked highly upon, but typically only used by those who couldn't afford a horse. But still these people so badly want to believe that this is the warrior king they had always dreamed of. And so they begin to chant a line from an old poem from Psalm 118, which is where Luke 19 38 comes from. Blessed And the poem poem from Psalms says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and they insert themselves, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the king we've always waited for. Psalm 118 was a messianic Psalm about a a, a one uh, who would come in and save the people and destroy the powerful enemies, save the people. So in other gospels, they cry out Hosanna, which means save us now. And Jesus is fulfilling this Psalm of destroying his enemies, just not in the way we might expect because he loves them. He really is the one prophesied back in Zechariah 9 who would come humble and mounted on a donkey and this had to throw everyone for a loop. All they had known were worldly ways of peace achieved through power and dominance and stamping out any insurrectionist who would dare stand up to us. But Jesus rides into town on a donkey on a path full of tattered worn coats cheered on by misfits and outcasts. And in doing this, he is staging a protest against worldly understandings of peace. As we think of the crowd who most likely most of them we don't know for sure, but most of them probably envisioned something drastically different from this self-proclaimed Messiah. I mean, he had healed the sick and raised the dead. Surely he can go in and overthrow the Roman rulers and oppression and end it. And as we think about this, we have to ask ourselves, which Jesus we are comfortable with following? Do we want the warrior king who comes riding in with the military might? political strength, and religious authority? Or are we okay with following a king into humility and meekness, a shepherd who protests against our worldly understandings of peace? How often do we want a king who will just conquer our foes, give us comfort, security, wealth, happiness, and everything we want? We could even get passionate and cheer this king on we can even be excited about this king that we fashioned in our mind, but are we still willing to follow him down the path of peace if it means losing our life and walking into humility and even death? Are we willing to lay down our most cherished rights for the lives of others or do we cling onto them? Do we follow the politicians of the day, the religious leaders of the day, or the influential wealthy elite over the ways of Jesus? Because when you follow Jesus, it comes at the ire and persecution of others. Jesus said, if, if you think they're not going to hate you, like they hated me, surely they're going to hate my followers. Do we just want him to be what we want him to be? Where we have fashioned a Jesus we like. And here how, here's how you know, and I know if I'm beginning to fashion a Jesus and make him in my image instead of being conformed to his, here's how this works Jesus hates everyone we hate and loves everyone we love. He always agrees with our political talking points, He always has the same standards and rules for all Christians that we have. And if this is our Jesus, we're not worshiping Jesus, we're worshiping ourselves. This is one response to Jesus and his path of peace that we might find ourselves tempted to follow. But there's another path, that of the religious elite in this passage. The religious elite even come to Jesus and say, silence the crowd, calm them down. And Jesus refuses, because even if the crowd is a little confused, at least they're, they're, they're like on the right path. And this religious elite, they had their agreement with Rome that they could keep their social status and power in the religious sphere. As long as there were no uprisings, no self-proclaimed messiahs, let's just keep the peace. The only problem is that keeping peace is different than making peace. And Jesus was here to make peace for all, regardless of the disturbance it required. Some of us wanna soften Jesus, make him palatable, so we can kind of just maintain some peace with the powerful cultural and social leaders and influencers of the day. But the pathway of following Jesus doesn't allow for that. The gospel will bring offense at one point or another. I'm not saying we should just be jerks. That's not the point point. and don't blame it on, well, the gospel's just offensive and you're a, well, you're a jerk. I'll say that word instead of something else. The gospel will bring offense the message of Jesus can't be tamed or watered down. And at some point, unnecessarily, it will come into conflict with the way of the world and the way of religious systems. It is a whole new kingdom. And the question is not if it's willing to conform to what we want it to, but if we're willing to forsake everything and conform to Christ, even if we lose the world crowd continues to cheer as Jesus nears closer to Jerusalem. He knows where he's headed. As Jesus rides on the back of the donkey and he comes over the ridge, he can see in the distance, the city of Jerusalem, what represented the center of religious life for his people, the chosen ones through whom God wanted to bless the world You would expect as Jesus gets closer to this conflict that he would egg on the chance as you watch Caitlin Clark do when she hits a big shot. Let's go. Some of y'all know I'm talking about, some of y'all don't. Y'all need to watch more women's basketball. Can I get an amen? All right, we got one. You would expect him to egg on the chance, maybe gain some momentum as he heads toward the city. But for those in the crowd who took a long enough break from the frenzy and the chance to notice If they look close at Jesus, they would have seen a shocking scene. Instead of his head held high in pride and confidence, our text tells us that Jesus begins to weep. In the Greek, this is not just a few tears kind of that roll down his face. This is a violent sobbing, emotionally overwhelmed, filled filled with grief and sadness because he knows that he has been rejected by his own. This is Yahweh, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the creator of the world, weeps. And he's not sad for his own sake, but for theirs. He knows what is to come and it grieves him. He says, Jerusalem, I would have loved to have gathered you, but you would not. If only you knew what would bring peace, but you're not recognizing the time when God himself visited you. You're missing what's staring you in the face. And I hate it because God is not willing that any should perish. And Jesus sadly, prophetically predicts what would come true in about 40 short years the temple would be destroyed and the peace that they were trying so hard to juggle and maintain. And that's why they reject Jesus. In other passages, if you don't get rid of Jesus, they're gonna come take away your place and your nation. And we can't lose that. We gotta maintain that. And in trying to keep their own earthly kingdom, they missed out on the kingdom of God. And in the end, they lost both. When we try to gain the world, We lose our soul and you lose the world too. As C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Jesus sobs because he knows that real lasting eternal peace is not found in a revolution, but in the revelation of God as revealed in the man, Christ, Jesus. And to those who reject him, he says some of the saddest words. Would you have known what brought peace? You did not recognize the time when God visited you. They wanted a religious and political leader. And what they missed was that God in flesh was in their midst, visiting them and offering true and ultimate peace but they did not have eyes to see. And this is the last thing we'll see. We saw the promise of peace, the pathway of peace, and now we see the person of peace. See, peace is not ultimately found in creating tranquil scenes for ourselves. Peace is ultimately found in a person. But peace does not come without division first. Hope does not come without loss. Joy does not come without grief. Life does not come without death. And Easter does not happen without good Friday. Jesus knew that peace for the world would require conflict for him. Require him to go into the greatest battle ever fought against sin and the enemy. And he would have to crawl up on a cross and die for the sins of the world. Because the ultimate peace that we all need, though we, there's nothing wrong with desiring peace in the here and now, but the ultimate peace we need is not to either be freed from our oppressors or to join sides with them and overthrow our enemies. The ultimate peace we need is peace with God. And our sin has kept us from that. Not only has it affected us as individuals, it's infected the entire cosmos. Like the world is groaning to be restored because it is broken. Wars, divisions, school shootings, and death, and sickness, and pain. But Jesus did not stay distant from that. He came to deal with the ultimate problem. And that is the story of Good Friday. He is beaten and mocked, stripped naked, and made ashamed. A crown of thorns shoved into his head. And anyone watching would have thought of this scene as bringing anything but peace. Where was the army? Where were the soldiers? Who's going to overthrow the Roman rule? We, we thought he was the one. Who's going to usher in peace? And the revolution seems to be an utter failure as he gasped for breath on the cross. He cries out, asking his father, my God, my God, Why? Why have you forsaken me? But he was willing to enter into that division from his own father so that we might be brought into peace and union with God. He eventually takes his last breath and he is placed in a borrowed tomb to rot. On Holy Saturday, he lays silent in the grave, resting on the Sabbath just as God did in the original creation, as Jesus is bringing a new creation and he lays in a rock hewn out of the earth. But on resurrection morning, the stones begin to cry out and the earth opens up and gives way to the son of God and the peace bringer walks out of the tomb alive. And it is through his death that he brings life. It is through his grief that he offers joy. It is through his sacrifice that he offers healing. It is through his division that he offers peace. And this is the story of the person of peace. It's about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's what we hinge everything on. It's what Christians commonly call the gospel or the good news because that's what it is. And this is the invitation to you because of the work of Christ, no matter what family you were born into, no matter what you've done, no matter your marital status, no matter your income level, the invitation is to come find peace at the table of Jesus. He is the peace that we're longing for when we try to fill the void with things of this age. It is offered in Christ. He is where true peace is found. So wherever you find yourselves today, maybe you identify with the crowds or the Pharisees, however you've responded to Jesus in the past, whether you fully understood his way or not, right here, right now, peace is offered to you because ultimate peace is revealed in the beautiful face of Jesus. And it's a peace that the world did not give, so the world cannot take it away. And when we surrender to this, when we quit trying to clamor and try to have control and power and might and we surrender, our eyes are opened and we recognize the time that God has visited us in Christ. When we see a God who weeps because he loves you that much, you can't stay the same. We say, I'll follow you anywhere. We'll go into death. Let's go, sometimes through tears and weeping and crying but we walk into humility, loss, surrender, weeping, even death. Because we know that joy, life, and peace await on the other side. And you know the proof of that? It's Easter morning. The resurrection of Jesus is what's called the first fruits. That means there are more to come. There will be actual, real peace when Jesus returns, like like tangible, like you can chill by the fire and the snow falling outside. Whatever it is for you, he's preparing a place for you. Well, whatever it is, like that's real, that's coming. But then the big thing about it is that Jesus, the blazing glory of Christ will be at the center of it all. There will be no more need for sun because the glory of Christ is brighter than any earthly sun. School shootings will end. Wars will cease. Guns will be turned to garden tools. Instruments of death will be transformed to instruments of life. Death will turn to life. Ashes will turn to beauty. And tears, crying, prejudice, poverty, despair, racism, all of it will be eradicated and cast outside the kingdom of Shalom, the kingdom of peace. All because of a humble king who lived, died, buried, and was rose again. And so in the here and now, we want to see kingdom come burst forth into the presence and give a snapshot, a picture, an appetizer, a foretaste of the feast that has come. That's why we gather on Sundays, church, because Jesus got out of the grave and we're going to celebrate forever and it's going to be vibrant and life-giving. This is just a picture of foretaste. Our lives are the protest to the world, showing where true peace can be found, a peace that passes worldly understanding that says it doesn't make sense sense. And we point them to Jesus and say, you're right, it doesn't. But for God, our hope is not in money, fame, political, religious power, might, but rather in a crucified and risen Messiah. So on this Palm Sunday, may we reflect on the promise of peace offered to us, the pathway of peace that we're invited to walk and the person of peace Jesus, who gave his life to ransom and redeem us.